All right, grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 20. You're actually going to have a little bit of time before we actually read that section of Scripture today. There's some groundwork that I want to get through. Uh, And I want to begin by reflecting on a season of my life when I was in the first summer of college. I needed to find a job, right? And that was kind of a season of life where you're, you're entering into adulthood somewhat, but you're not far enough into your collegiate career that you need to do uh, any sort of internship or anything along those lines. And so uh, I was looking for a job, and I, I all of a sudden had this idea to work at TBRM Sports Camp in New Braunfels, Texas. Uh, and I got really excited about that. It's, it's an overnight camp, typically uh, uh, aiming for children ages 8 to 12, it's a sports camp, and it's all those things that I really enjoy, but it was a, a nostalgic experience for me and something that really piqued my interest because this was the camp that I went to growing up. And in fact, when I was 10 years old, it was at T-Barm Sports Camp that I really found Jesus as my Savior. And I prayed that prayer and asked him into my life and asked for forgiveness of my sins, and it was a very significant marker in my life. Now, granted, it took about another six years before I found Jesus as the Lord, and actually started kind of living for him. But there's no doubt that that moment at TBRM definitely was a seed that was planted in my heart that really was very significant. And so to have a chance to go back uh, in college as an adult and to pour into kids in the same way that people poured into me was something that was very compelling to me. And so that's where I spent the first two summers of my collegiate experience, and I loved my summers at TBRM. And my first summer there, and I think the second summer as well, the, the guy that was in charge of all the... The, the male counselors, he was the men's camp director. He was in charge of about 20 to 30 of the other young college males that were there. Uh, his name was Zach Bynum, right? So Zach was my boss, and I loved Zach. Zach was not the charismatic, out in front, demanding attention sort of leader. He was the more reserved, kind of uh, quiet and humble disposition sort of guy, but he had tremendous integrity great sense of humor, and we just, we all loved working for him. And one of the reasons why was just the way he carried himself. And, and I'll never forget on one particular occasion, I can't remember exactly where on the campsite we were, but I remember it was in kind of one of those large group gathering spaces, and I was running to go get something, and so I walked in there when that room was empty, and I, and I came upon Zach, who was in that room, and he was sweeping the floor. And that really struck me, because uh, here he was, he's my boss, Right? He's in charge of so many of us, and there he was sweeping the floor. And at that season of life where you're trying to figure out what does it mean to become a man, what does it mean to, to understand leadership, to pursue a career, that was such a profound example that really stuck with me that I, I remember it even to this day. Because it was an example of leadership through servanthood, through humility, leading by example. All these things that I really took to heart and thought that I, these are things that I want to try to emulate later in my life, and it was a great example of what leadership can be and just how important it can be. And that's really kind of the question that I want you to reflect upon this morning, is this this notion of leadership. What does leadership mean to you? How do you think of it? How does it impact you? Maybe the better way to to kind of present that is to, to get specific. Who would you consider to be a leader in your life today? Like, who, who do you have in that role that you would say, this is somebody that I see as a leader in my life. Who, who are you listening to? What, what voice are you hearing? What, what voice are you following? And where is it leading you? Th- those are kind of the fundamental questions that I want us to consider this morning. And, and, and so let's start by just kind of 
approaching that subject of leadership in general and, and defining it to better kind of wrestle with it a little bit. I came across this article that was written by an individual by the name of Kevin Cuse. It was an article that was written in uh, Forbes magazine back in 2013. And the reason it kind of grabbed me is because it was a holistic approach to the subject matter. Kevin Cuse is an author and has written many books on leadership, and he contributes this article. And, and in this, he kind of takes this holistic approach by first describing what, what is often kind of a misconception of leadership. And he, he highlights some of these misconceptions that we often attribute in terms of leadership. He says, you know, leadership is not seniority or a position of hierarchy, right? A lot of times we think it is that because somebody has been here a certain amount of time or they have a certain seniority that that automatically equates to leadership. And he's saying that's not always the case. He says that it's not always about titles, right? Just because they carry a title of CEO or president or boss or whatever it is, that doesn't necessarily equate to sound leadership either. He, he eliminates the misconception of personal attributes, right? A lot of times we're drawn into someone's charisma or their intellect and personal qualities that we often define as being strong leadership qualities. And then he also makes this distinction related to management, saying managers manage things, they manage tasks, leaders lead people. So he kind of identifies some of these misconceptions. And he says, so now let's try to define it. And he draws upon certain examples from other well-known authors on the subject. For example, Peter Drucker, who essentially defines leadership as someone who has followers. Uh, he, he references Warren Bennis, who says that leadership is the capacity to translate vision into reality. Uh, Bill Gates, who talks about leadership having the capacity to empower others. John Maxwell, that leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. And so all decent answers, but essentially what Kevin Cuse's argument is, is that they're all a little too simplistic. They're a little too reductionistic. And so here's his definition. He says, leadership is a process of social influence which maximizes the efforts of others towards the achievement of a goal. Let me say that again. Leadership is a process of social influence which maximizes the efforts of others towards the achievement of a goal. That's a pretty good definition. And, and if you kind of pair it with all these other examples that he includes, that even though he says they're reductionistic, you can kind of see some common themes. Leadership obviously employ, implies others, right? You have some notion of an audience or somebody following it. That's kind of inherent to the idea. You have an idea of influence, right? That because you have others around you, there is some sort of influence that you exert over them. Could be through intimidation, could be through inspiration, but there's some form of influence. And then there's a vision, right? There's a direction. We're going here, right? These are kind of the essential qualities of leadership. And, and yet what I really liked about this is that it kind of drives home that question. Who do I see as a leader? Who am I following and why? And it kind of calls us into question, am I following people based on some of these misconceptions, Right? Am I asking the right questions of what I'm expecting of a leader? Like, am I drawn to somebody just because of their seniority or the hierarchy that exists at, at a place of work or in an organization? Right? Am I following a title, right? enamored with some status that has been assigned to somebody? Or maybe I'm drawn to somebody's personal attributes. I'm just drawn to the fact that they're charismatic or they're influential. Like, what is it that is really drawing me to these individuals, and, and, and why do I see them as leaders? These are some of the questions that we need to ask. And then when we even break down those themes, like what kind of influence do they have over me? Is it positive? Is it negative? Is it by intimidation? Or is it helpful? Is it by example? And where is it leading? Right? Th these are the questions we need to wrestle with. Right? What, 
What person do I see as a leader? What voice am I listening to and why? I want you thinking through that this morning because today's parable is going to drive to the heart of this question of leadership and the voice that we really need to be listening to. So that's what we're going to find in Luke chapter 20. It's, it's the parable of the tenants. Now, if you were to make a list of the most well-known parables, this one would be pretty far down on that list. In fact, I would even be willing to assume many of you would not even think to put it on your list, right? Uh, it, we, we often go through the good Samaritan, the prodigal son, the lost sheep, the lost coin. There are all these other parables that we will think of before we even begin to think about the parable of the tenants. And yet, I'm willing to suggest this morning that in Jesus' day, I think it stands to reason that this parable was perhaps the most well-known parable of that time. That it was so significant that it was maybe the most talked about parable of Jesus' ministry. Let me make a case as to why I think we can at least consider that as a reality. The first is that it's mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Right? It's one of the few parables that's in all three of the synoptic gospels. Synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so just the fact that it's in all three of those kind of stands to, to provide or show evidence that this really landed with people. This is one that everyone heard and everybody talked about, so it was in every single one of the gospels. But there's another reason, there's, there's another reason that I think we can identify it as being so impactful by looking at the historical context. And, and in order for us to look at this clearly, the first thing we really need to do is recognize some of the things that can often serve as blinders to us when we approach the scriptures, right? Like some of the things that kind of prevent us from seeing scriptures clearly as we should or, or things that kind of change the lens. So for example, we've, we've talked about this before, but when you think about the fact that we typically approach scripture through this American Western mindset, that, that presents certain influential lenses that kind of shape how we interpret the text. For example, we tend to be a very individualistic society. And so a lot of times we read, read scriptures through the lens of the individual rather through the lens of the community, right? That's, that's an example. Well, one of the other things that we often do is kind of this Western American mentality that I think influences our limited understanding of the impact of this parable is the separation of church and state. Right? Like that, that's a phrase that we all are familiar with as Americans, right? That's kind of one of the tenets of, of our freedoms here, the freedom of religion, the, to explicitly state that the, the state cannot govern the church, right? These are two distinct arenas. And so we, we model that, we, we celebrate that sort of freedom that we have here in our country. Now, there's some growing irony in that because it seems that the more and more we progress, we see more of those lines being blurred as people continually choose uh, to elevate political ideologies to shape their biblical theologies, but that's, that's something else that we can maybe hit on a little bit later. But, but really what that does is can almost, um, without knowing, subconsciously influence how we even read Jesus. Because what, that, what we do is we have these two different arenas. So if I'm talking about politics, I'm in this arena. And if I'm talking about Jesus and I'm reading the scripture, I'm in this arena. And so as a result, we can easily often see Jesus as almost an apolitical figure. What I mean is like he's just not even political at all. And when in reality, he was very much a political figure. And so much of what he did in that context had a significant political impact in his immediate surroundings. And yet we never even think about that because we often see the two as separate. And, and so I, I want to explain to you 
just what sort of impact and, and why that this was arguably one of the most well-known parables is because of the political implications that surround it. Now, this sermon today is not about politics. Uh, I've, I've referenced at length, uh, kind of in a sermon earlier in the year in January about Christian nationalism and that role in our society today. You can go back and, and listen to that if you want to have that sort of conversation. It, it's not directly about politics. Indirectly, we will talk about it here a little bit later, but it's not directly about it. But, but what we need to see is that because of the context that surrounded this parable, that it actually had this fusion of the religious and the political world that is what made this parable so significant. So, so if we do some, some history, okay, here's what we discover is that obviously the nation of Israel uh, it comes up out of Egypt. They, they live in the promised land and over time decide to choose a king. They get King David. They, they rule as a nation. They drive everyone out. They build this temple through all this purity, through all these, these rites, these regulations, and all these things begin to develop. And then exile, right? They're conquered. They're, they're overcome. They're, they're uh, put under subjugation and all these different things that take place. And so after that, they live in this kind of ebb and flow of being under the rule, of, under captivity of other people or in some form of, of exile. And so right before Jesus' birth, and by that I mean a couple hundred years before Jesus' birth, you get about a hundred semi, you know, 120 year period or so of them living under their own rule. It was the Hasmonean Empire and dynasty, okay? But then around 63 BC, so 63 BC, is when Rome comes in and takes over. And now all of a sudden they're living back under uh, foreign opposition influence and it's not well received. And, and so here's what takes place. Rome comes in, they, they take over, and the way that, that that begins to impact life in that particular season is this growing gap between the wealthy and the poor. And part of this was because of how Rome ruled the territories that they conquered. What they would do is they would come in and they would kind of cozy up next to the aristocracy, the wealthy in those, those districts and regions that they had conquered. And they would demand their loyalty from this wealthy aristocracy, and that would be kind of how they continued to maintain a certain level of peace and a certain level of rule. Well, when you think about conquering Israel and Jerusalem, what you have to first realize is that that aristocracy was the priestly line because of the role of the temple in Israel's life. Like the temple was everything, right? It wasn't just where you went to worship, right? It was the largest financial institution. It was probably one of the largest employing situations. It had numerous people that worked there. You had uh, judicial systems there. The Sanhedrin was essentially the Supreme Court. Right? It was the highest court of the land. And so you had all these governing authorities. In the Sanhedrin, they were run by the chief priest or the high priest. And then the chief priest was the head of the Sanhedrin. So you had this incredible fusion of politics and religious life in the temple. And so what Rome knows when they come in to take over Israel and take over Jerusalem is that if you're going to control Jerusalem, you have to control the temple. Right, the wealthy aristocracy of Jerusalem was the priestly class that was ruling the temple. And so that's who they need to rule. Well, what Rome would do is they would find people that would support them. And so King Herod comes along around 37 BC. That's the Herod that was alive during Jesus's birth, not the Herod of Jesus's death. And Herod comes into Jerusalem with a Roman army and with this loyalty to Rome, and he takes over, and one of the first things he does is he massacres every member of the Sanhedrin. Like, he kills them all, all the high priests. 
and he puts new people in their place who essentially purchase those roles and those positions for him. And, and then he demonstrates this loyalty to Rome by continually bringing these Roman influences to the point that he actually has the high priest offered two sacrifices every day to Caesar as the son of God. Right? That's the context. That's the political climate of Jesus' day. So imagine being the nation of Israel, right? Your history is to rid yourself of these foreign influences, to have this holy temple, and now your leaders, right, your chief priests, they've purchased these positions because of their luxury and their wealth, and they're dedicating a loyalty to Rome, they're dedicating a loyalty to, to idolatry just so they can maintain this power. So when Herod dies, there are all these uprisings, right? It, it is politically a, a season of con- tremendous strife. There was no separation between the two. So that's the climate. So when we're reading the gospel and we see references to chief priests, uh, high priests, teachers of the law, elders, those are the religious leaders who are stepping into this corrupt political system and ruling Jerusalem in that point in time. So consider that. And then think about the actual context of this parable, okay? Luke chapter 19, here's what happens. Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king, right? We know it as the triumphal entry. We talk about it on Palm Sunday, Jesus riding in on a donkey and everybody yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna. Now, that would have made very clear in that point in time. Riding on a donkey sounds a little odd and out of place to us, but that was what kings would do in a time of peace, Right, they rode horses in a time of war. They rode donkeys in a time of peace. And so with that uh, attention from the crowd and those shouts of Hosanna, there is a clear uh, delineation from Jesus, a clear declaration from Jesus that I'm arriving here as king. So think about what that would say to the existing ruling class and the leaders of that day. Man, that would have set off alarms. That would have set off triggers. And not only does he arrive as king, what is the first thing he does once he shows up? He goes straight to the temple. And in perhaps one of the most outrageous things, one of the most shocking things of all of Jesus' ministry outside of the resurrection, he clears the temple. Like he meets this political conflict head on. He takes all this corruption, all this idolatry, and he drives them out, turns over tables. And he's like, who do you think you guys are? You, you guys are sitting here and you transformed this temple out of a place of prayer and into a den of robbers. And it tells us the leadership of the day, those, those teachers, those leaders, they wanted to kill him right away. And so there's this animosity, there's this tension. So when we're getting ready to read Luke 20, chapter 9, this isn't people just casually sitting around going, hey, what authority do you have to do these things? Like, they're curious. This is, this is a question out of animosity and aggression and hatred. This existing political and religious ruling class of leaders are sitting there watching this this audacious approach of Jesus to enter Jerusalem as king, to drive out the temple, and they're saying, who do you think you are? By what authority are you doing these things? And that's the question that prompts this parable. So we need to understand that. That's why so many people remembered it, man, because it was in the middle of such strife and conflict. So let's read and see what Jesus uh, says and how he answers that question. So picking up in chapter 20, starting in verse 9. He went on to tell the people this parable. 
A man planted a vineyard and rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some fruit of the vineyard, but the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and they threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, They talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when the people heard this, they said, God forbid. And Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. That's such a, a very powerful and direct confrontational parable. And, and so there are several things that we need to just kind of point out that For the people at that point in time, they would have understood the meaning, right? First and foremost, Isaiah chapter 5 references this imagery of the vineyard. People uh, at that point in time, Jews in in that setting, would understand that the vineyard represented Israel, right? Because of that Old Testament text, they knew that when Jesus starts talking about this parable about a vineyard, he's talking about the nation and the people of Israel. Now, the other thing that's very familiar about this parable is just the practicality of the situation in the context within which they lived, Uh, that this was a very common practice. This was not an unusual thing, that there were wealthy landowners who would often rent out their lands to be run by these tenants, these farmers, and then the owners would go live in another country. And so these tenants, these kind of rented uh, folks would, would take care of that land, and then this owner would send these servants, and there were numerous occasions where those tenants would absolutely beat them and send them away, in some, pl- in some situations even kill them so that they could take by force this vineyard that was not rightfully theirs. So my point is, is that everything about this parable is easily identifiable, both in terms of its imagery to the nation of Israel and also just the, the everyday practicality of what people saw on a regular occurrence. And so the meanings are pretty easy to, to understand, right? The vineyard is Israel, The owner of the vineyard is God. The tenants are the chief priests, the the teachers of the law, the elders, the leadership of that day. The servants that the owner sends are the prophets, and they continually refuse the prophets. And so after all the prophets are sent, what does the owner of the vineyard, what does God do? He sends his son, which represents Jesus. And so the whole parable has clear meaning where everybody understands their place. And and what it ultimately teaches is that your rejection of the son is going to ultimately result in your demise, right? You think right now that you have this vulnerable person that you think you can eliminate through arresting or killing, but that will ultimately result in this stone coming and crushing you. And this vineyard that has been entrusted to you, this nation that has been entrusted to you will be taken from you and given to someone else. Right? And so it is a direct assault on the leadership of the day, which is why you see towards the end, they know. They know this was about them, so they immediately wanted to arrest him. Right? And so this is, this is a parable that clearly um, 
forces us to ask the question of leadership, right? It's, it's a confrontational um, indictment about the leadership of the day and Jesus upending that leadership because it had gotten so corrupt. And so if we're going to take the context of this parable and try to apply it to our situation today, then part of what it means to call us to, to question, or at least to remember, is just how easy it is for the people who have been entrusted to shepherd the, the, the children of God, the people of God, to arrive at a place where they actually refuse to be accountable to God, right? That they actually refuse to listen to God, to maintain that power, and then that absolutely will result in a very destructive environment. And so when we begin to look at it through that lens, it doesn't take long for us to recognize that there's a long list of examples of people who have been entrusted with a role of leadership over God's people and have misused it and have inflicted tremendous amount of pain and so many wounds upon those who were there under their care. I mean, think about the examples that we can offer up just very uh, simply this morning. There was an article earlier this month at the beginning of October about a, latest, uh, a recent inquiry in France that estimates around 215,000 children uh, were abused by Catholic priests between 1950 and the present day, right? which is just the latest chapter of too many chapters of a global problem. Right? It's not just confined to Europe. We've seen it here in the States. We've seen it all over the world. And it's not just confined to the Catholic denomination. Right? Just a couple of years ago, we, we read uh, an article in the Houston Chronicle about 700 victims over the last 20 years who have been abused in, within the Southern Baptist denomination and how we're still seeing the rippling effects of those decisions and that impact that it's having on churches all around us, including our own. And it's not just denominational, right? We could start uh, rattling off lists of names of people who have also been in those positions of leadership who have fallen morally and caused all these wounds, whether it's Ted Haggard or Bill Hybels or Ravi Zacharias or Carl Lentz, and the list goes on and on and on. One of the more popular podcasts right now, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, takes a look at all the leadership structure around Mark Driscoll and and the abuse that took place under his watch and his leadership, and not just him, but all, I mean, it, it speaks to a culture that we're a part of. And even though there's a long list of names that we know about, the ones that the media gets a hold of and that we see reported and shared, think of all the stories that aren't, right? The countless stories that take place in, in places that very few people pay attention to, but the wounds are just as real and deep. In fact, the stories that I often think about are the ones that involve actual conversations with people that I've sat down with over coffee. Like when I first got here, sitting down with a young couple and, and watching this, this young wife talk about the pain and the heartache that she experienced from a youth minister that she had growing up and division she saw play out in the church. Now it created years of distrust of the church and of church leadership, trying to figure out if this place and if I would actually be safe. I think about other conversations I've had with people. I have one friend in particular who's not a believer and has no desire to set foot within a church because of some of the things she saw at an early age. And she recounts one particular story of going to a funeral service of a young child 
a small baby, and hearing the church leader that was presiding over that funeral say that this child will be in hell because it wasn't baptized. The list goes on and on. And the wounds run deep of people who have listened and heard the voices of those who were entrusted with caring for God's people, and instead of caring for them, they wounded them instead. It's hard to measure the impact of those wounds, the depth of them, how hard it is to heal from them. And and I want to at least take this moment to acknowledge that we can't just limit it to religious leaders. Right? I, I want us to, to draw from the context of what we saw in this parable and recognize that what Jesus is attacking is not just spiritual leaders, but political ones as well. Right? And so while we often think about it in two different arenas, we have to recognize that, yes, too many times, even in the political arena, we are seeing wounds that destroy the people of God because of the corruption of those that are put in place of authority. And so I guess part of what I would say to begin is, I'm sorry. Like if you're here this morning and you've been wounded, you've been hurt by somebody that was entrusted with the responsibility to care for you because they chose not to be accountable to God and it resulted in any sort of hardship or wound you, I want you to know I'm sorry that you had to endure that. And to the extent that I, as a current leader of a church, can hopefully offer up a spirit of repentance that that can hopefully move amongst other churches and other church leaders to continually move in a spirit of repentance to recognize we can do better in desiring accountability to God and caring for his people if in any way that can begin or help continue the healing process. That's what we want to do. Just a little bit at a time to help those wounds heal and to show God's love for you. But it also leads all of us to ask that question, who am I listening to and why? And too many of us are listening to the wrong voices. And many of us that find ourselves in those positions of influence can so easily become corrupted or corruptible because we refuse to be accountable to God. So who are you listening to and where are they leading? I think the other thing that we can draw from this parable is God's incredible patience. Right, you think about the number of servants that he sent to these tenants. Not just one, not just two, but three just in the parable, which we know is just symbolic of the many, many prophets that were actually sent to the people of God. And what that shows us is God's longing heart for his people to listen to him. He pleads with us. He desires us to put his voice above every other voice. And we see not just this patience and this desire to plead, but we even see the finality of Jesus. That it arrives at this point where God says, if they won't listen to the prophets, maybe they'll listen to my son whom I love. But recognize in this parable, no one is sent after the Son. 
Our response to Jesus is the finality of it all. He is either the stone that crushes us or the stone that we build our lives upon. He is the final word. The book of Hebrews says it like this, that in the past God spoke to us in many ways. He sent prophets at various times and in different scenarios, but now he's chosen to send his son who is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. We know that God's final and ultimate plea is through Jesus. And so how will we respond to him? And, and that's kind of where I want to wrap up this message this morning. Right, is I want us to think about the key figures in not just this parable, but really this context. Right? Obviously, you could say Jesus is a central figure. You, you could talk about the chief priests and the, the elders, the teachers of the law being a central figure. And there's a lot of lessons if you kind of put yourself in their shoes. But the, the one perspective that I really want us to think about, especially as it speaks to this context around this parable, is the people, the crowd. Right, well, here's what's interesting about it, right? At the very end of this section of passage or verses that we read today, what do we see? They wanted to arrest him. Like the, the hostility, the anger, it was off the charts. But why didn't they? Because they were afraid of the people, right? And, and if you were to just back up ever so slightly to chapter 19, right after he drives people out of the temple and he has that huge confrontation, they want to kill him immediately. But why don't they? Because the people were hanging on every word of Jesus. The people are such a huge part of this story. And so think about the shift. Right here in these moments where this tension is at its highest, what protects Jesus is that the people were listening to him. But you turn just a few more pages and you get to after this arrest, those same leaders, those same chief priests, those elders, man, they go and they stir up the crowd according to Matthew's gospel. They go and they incite people and those voices go from Hosanna to crucify because they stopped listening to Jesus and they were listening to the wrong people. Who are you listening to? What are they saying and where are they leading you? Now, here's what I love about that phrase in Luke chapter 19 when it says they hung on every word of Jesus. That word hung on means that they considered seriously, they persisted, they listened eagerly. That's our answer. Right? Like that's the application for us today. Right? When we think about the voices that we listen to, when we think about leadership in our lives, what we need to recognize is we need to be a people that are going to hang on to the words of Jesus above all else, right? And what that means is, is that we are going to seriously consider his words more than anyone else, right? And, and we need to confess too often, man, we are being influenced and led astray by the voices we hear on, on cable news or on social media or whatever, and it's leading us down a terrible path. And the voice that we need to consider more seriously than any other is the word that we find in Christ. And we need to persist in it. Not just every once in a while, not just occasionally, but daily come to seriously consider and listen eagerly to the words of Jesus and let us hang on to his words and follow him more than anyone else. We need to make him our cornerstone. 
that the cornerstone is the central piece that holds all things together, right? And that's what, what we're seeing here is that our response to Jesus and our willingness to hang on to his words determines everything, right? He either becomes the stone that crushes us or there are lives you're built upon. And when you draw upon that sort of description from 1 Peter chapter 2, we see that when we build our lives on this stone, this rock that is Christ, and we make him the cornerstone of our lives, we are reminded that we are actually a chosen people. God loves us, and he chooses us. We're a holy nation, a royal priesthood. He has entrusted us to take this message to others, and we need to steward that responsibility well. We are called to declare the praises of him who has called us out of darkness and into wonderful light, because we were once not a people, but now we are. We once had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. And it's because of that mercy, it's because of that adoption, it's because of God choosing to send his one and only beloved son that whoever would believe in him will not perish and have everlasting life, that we have the cornerstone upon which we can build our lives. So who are you listening to? What voice are you longing to hear and where is it leading you? May today and every day forward, may we turn our hearts and our ears and our minds towards heaven and listen to his voice above all others and make him the cornerstone of our lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the gift that is Jesus. God, we confess so many times that those, including ourselves, who find themselves in a position of influence can create wounds instead of healing. And so, Father, for any of us that have made those sorts of mistakes, Father, help us to repent. Father, for those that are here today who have been wounded, help them heal. And God, help us to once again tune our hearts towards you and to listen to your voice above all others. God, we confess so many times we try to build our lives on things that will ultimately fail. God, we try to build our lives on things of this world rather than this gospel message. God, we, we oftentimes neglect the accountability that we owe to you, Father, so that we can cling to some sort of earthly importance or some sort of earthly status. God, help us to surrender all those things and cling only to Christ. Help him be this cornerstone that holds all things together, God, and may we truly once again celebrate the fact that you've chosen us, that you've given us mercy, that you've made us your people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, God. Let us stand upon this rock that is Christ. Let us put our hope in nothing else and declare the praises of him who has called us out of darkness and into wonderful light. We love you, Father. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen.